Part four, chapter eight of Reisman's Steps by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anthony Ogus. On the landing. During the day, Henry had asked several times for bulletins as to Elsie's consumption of food, and he received them with satisfaction, but also with a certain sardonic air new in Violet's experience of him. This demeanour was one of the things that disquieted Violet. Another was that, contrary to his habit of solicitude for her, he made absolutely no inquiry as to her own health, though he surely ought to have been ever so little disturbed about it. And another was that he no longer showed his customary quiet pleasure in being worried over her. After taking some soft food, he demanded a toothpick, and had employed himself with it in the most absurd way for quite an hour. In answer to her question, he said blandly again and again that he was all right. Soon after nightfall, he insisted that the electricity should be switched off. Violet refused, as she was determined to watch him carefully. He said that the light hurt his eyes. She took the paper lining from a tray in her wardrobe, and fashioned a shade for the lamp, the first shade ever known in that house. At ten o'clock, feeling cold and ill, she undressed and got into bed, but kept the light burning. Henry was perfectly tranquil. The tram seemed to make a tremendous uproar. She could not sleep, but Henry apparently dozed at intervals. Then she had a severe shock. He was violently sick. "'What's this? What's this?' he murmured feebly and sadly. He did not know what it was. But Violet, who had witnessed a deal of physical life during her peregrinations with the clerk of the works, knew what it was. It was what Violet's varied acquaintances had commonly called, in tones of awe on account of its seriousness, the coffee-grounds vomit. It was, indeed, a sinister phenomenon. Henry had dropped back exhausted. His forehead was wet, and his hair damp with perspiration. Also he seemed to be terrorised, he who was never afraid until hours or days after the event. At this point it was that Violet went out of the bedroom to send Elsie for the doctor. As soon as Elsie was gone, Violet dressed. She still felt very cold and ill. The minutes dragged. Henry lay inert. His aspect had considerably worsened. The facial emaciation was accentuated, and the pallor of the ears and the lips, and even his beard and hair were limp as if from their own fatigue. Elsie's greed was now an infinitesimal thing in Violet's mind, and the importance attached to it struck her as wildly absurd. Yet she had a strange cruel desire, which she repressed, to say to Henry, "'Your bluff has failed, your bluff has failed, and look at you.' She thought of the approaching Christmas, for which she had secretly been making plans for merriment. She had meant to get Elsie's aid, because she knew that Elsie had in her the instincts of fancy and romance. Pathetic. 
She thought of her anger at Elsie's indiscretion in telling a customer that the master would never get up again. Ridiculous anger. He never would get up again. And what did it matter if all Clerkenwell knew in advance? The notion of Henry spending money on the cure of his damaged knee seemed painfully laughable. His dread, genuine or affected, of communism seemed merely grotesque. She saw a funeral procession, consisting of a hearse and one coach, leave Riceman's steps. The coffin would have to be carried across the space from the shop door to the main road, as no vehicle could come right to the door. Crowds. Crowds of gapers. Then she heard a noise below. Elsie, who had run all the way to Middleton Square and all the way back, tapped with tremulous eagerness. "'He's coming, Mum!' she was panting. Dr. Raster arrived, but only after an interval of nearly half an hour, which seemed to Violet like half a night. The fact was that, despite much practice, he could not dress in less than about twenty minutes, nor was it his habit to run to his patients, whatever their condition. He came with the collar of his thick overcoat turned up. Violet met him on the landing. She had shut the bedroom door behind her. He was calm, he yawned, and his demeanour hovered between the politely indifferent and the politely inimical. He spoke vaguely, but in his loud tone, in reply to Violet's murmur, "'I was afraid you weren't coming, Doctor.' Violet had by this time lost her sense of proportion. She was incapable of bearing in mind that the Doctor lived daily and nightly among disease and death, and that he was more accustomed to sick people than to healthy. She did not suspect that in the realism of his heart he regarded sick people and their relations in the mass as persons excessive in their fears, ruthless in their egotism, and cruel in their demands upon himself. She had no conception that to him a night call was primarily a grievance and secondarily an occasion to save life or pacify pain. She might have credited that fifty percent of his night calls were unnecessary, but she could never have guessed that he had already set down this visit to Riceman's steps as probably the consequence of a false, foolish, feminine alarm. She began to explain to him at length the unique psychology of the sufferer, as though the doctor had never before encountered an unwilling and obstinate patient. The doctor grew restless. Yes, just so, just so. I'd better have a look at him. I haven't dared to tell him I've sent for you, said Violet, piteously, reproachful of the doctor's inhumanity. Tut, tut, observed the doctor, and opened the bedroom door. He sniffed on entering, glanced placidly at Henry, then at the fireplace, and then went to the window and drew the curtains and blind aside. I should advise you to have a fire lighted at once, and will open the window a bit. He put his hat carefully on the chest of drawers, but did not even unbutton his overcoat or turn down his collar. Then he removed his gloves and rubbed his hands. At last to Henry, Well, Mr. Earl Forward, what's this I hear? No diplomacy with a patient. 
no ingenious excusing of his presence. The patient just had to accept his presence, and the patient, having no alternative, did accept it. "'Shall I light the fire now, ma'am?' asked Elsie timidly at the door. "'Yes,' said the doctor shortly, including both the women in his glance. "'But won't she be disturbing you while you're—' Violet suggested anxiously. She was afraid that this unprecedented proceeding would terribly upset Henry, and so make him worse. "'Not at all.' "'I don't think we've ever had this fire lighted,' said Violet, to which the doctor deigned no reply. "'Run along, Elsie. Take your things off and be quick. The doctor wants a fire immediately.' Before the doctor, changed now from an aggrieved human being into a scrupulously conscientious professional adviser, had finished his examination, the room was half full of smoke. Violet could not help looking at Elsie reproachfully, as if to say, Really, Elsie, you should be able to control the chimney better than this, and your master so ill. The patient coughed excessively, but everyone knew that the coughing was merely his protest against the madness of lighting a fire. "'I'm too hot,' he muttered. "'I'm too hot.' And such was the power of auto-suggestion that he did in fact feel too hot, though the fire had not begun to give out any appreciable heat. He privately determined to have the fire out as soon as the doctor had departed, a limit must be set to folly, after all. However, Henry was at once faced with a great new crisis which diminished the question of the fire to a detail. "'I can't come to any conclusion without washing out the stomach,' said Dr. Raster, turning to Violet and then turning back quickly to Henry. "'You say you've no pain there? You're sure?' And he touched a particular point on the chest. None, replied Henry. The fellow is lying, thought the doctor. It's amazing how they will lie. I bet anything is lying. Why do they lie? Nevertheless, the doctor could not be quite sure, and he had a general preference for not being quite sure. He liked to postpone judgment. I don't mind having my stomach washed out, Henry murmured blandly. No, of course not. I'll telephone to the hospital early tomorrow, and Mrs. Elford will take you round there in a cab. And to Violet. You'll see he's well covered, won't you? I will, Violet weakly agreed. But I don't want to go to any hospital, was Henry's second protest. Why can't you do the business here? Impossible in a house, the doctor announced. You can only do that sort of thing where you've got all the apparatus and conveniences. But I'll make it all smooth for you. Oh, no. Oh, no. Not to a hospital. The doctor said callously, I doubt whether you realise how ill you are, my friend. I'm not that ill. When should I come out again? The moment you're better. Oh, no. No hospital for me. There's two of them here to nurse me. Your wife is not in a condition to nurse you. You must remember that, please. Better get him there by eleven o'clock. I shall probably be there first. 
I'll give you the order to let you in. Henry ceased to cough. He ceased to feel hot. His condition suddenly improved in a marvellous way. He had been ill. He admitted now that he had been chronically ill. He had first begun to feel ill, either just before or soon after the eating of the wedding cake on his bridal night. But he was now better, much better. He was aware of a wonderful amelioration which surprised even himself. At any rate, he would not go into a hospital. The enterprise was too enormous and too perilous. Once in, when would he get out again? And nurses were frightful bullies. He would be helpless in a hospital. And his business? It would fall to ruin. Everything would get askew. And the household? Astounding foolishness would be committed in the house if he lost his grip on it. He could manage his business and he could manage his household, and nobody else could. Besides, there was no sound reason for going into a hospital. As for washing out his stomach, if that was all, give him some mustard and some warm water, and he would undertake to do the trick in two minutes. The doctor evidently desired to make something out of nothing. They were all the same. And women were all the same, too. He had imagined that Violet was not like other women. But he had been mistaken. She had lost her head. Otherwise she would never have sent for the doctor in the middle of the night. The doctor would undoubtedly charge double for a night visit. And the fire, choking and roasting him? He saw himself in the midst of a vast general lunacy and conspiracy, and he alone maintaining ordinary common sense and honesty. He felt the whole world against him, but he could fight the whole world. He had perfect confidence in the fundamental hard strength of his nature. Then he observed that the other two had left the room, yet he did not remember seeing them go. Elsie came back, her face smudged, to watch the progress of the fire, which was no longer smoking. "'Where's your mistress, my girl?' "'She's talking to the doctor on the landing, sir.' "'You see,' the doctor was saying in a low voice to Violet, "'it may be cancer at the cardiac end of the stomach. "'I don't say it is, but it may be. "'That would account for the absence of appetite and for other symptoms.' In the moonlight he saw Violet wiping her eyes. Come, come, Mrs. Earl Forward, you mustn't give way. It's not that, Violet spluttered, who was crying at the thought that she had consistently misjudged Henry for many months past. Not from miserliness, but from illness, he had been refusing to eat. He could not eat normally. He was a stricken man and to herself she had been accusing him of the meanest avarice and the lowest stupidity. She now in a flash acquitted him on every charge, and made him perfect. His astounding secretiveness as to his condition she tried to attribute to a regard for her feelings. "'What are we to do? What am I to do?' "'Oh,' said Dr. Raster, "'don't let that worry you.' We'll get him away all right tomorrow morning. I'll come myself and fetch him. At the same moment they both saw the bedroom door open and the lank figure of the patient 
in his blue-grey nightshirt emerge. The light was behind him and threw his shadow across them. Elsie stood scared in the background. "'It's not the slightest use, you two standing, chattering there,' Henry murmured bitterly. "'I'm not going into a hospital, so you may as well know it.' "'Oh, Henry!' "'Better get back to bed, Mr. Earlforward,' said the doctor, rather grimly and coldly. "'I'm going back to bed. I don't need you or anybody else to tell me I oughtn't to be out here.' I'm going back to bed. And he limped back to bed triumphant. Dr. Raster, who thought that he had nothing to learn about the strange possibilities of human behaviour, discovered that he had been mistaken. He could not hide that he was somewhat impressed. He again assured Violet that it would be all right in the morning, but he was not very convincing. As for Violet, since Dr. Raster was a little man, she did not consider that he had much chance morally against her husband, who was unlike all other men, and indeed the most formidable man on earth. End of chapter 8